You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'm going to be your Yogi Abraham. And I'm going to be your well-stretched co-host, Shane. Excellent. So, welcome. We are a psychology podcast that likes to talk about sort of random psychology topics through a lens of science, but in an easy-to-understand way. What's really fun about this show is that we try to tackle everyday topics, everyday scenarios, everyday subjects, and and definitely frame it in that way where it's like, you know, because at the end of the day, psychology is a part of literally anything that humans do everywhere. And, you know, there is like a a science behind all of it. So we just want to explore that a little bit and talk about it and maybe debunk a few things that people have strong beliefs about. And also some things that are not everyday, but are super sporadic and random, like clinical lycanthropy. See historical episode for reference. (laughs) Okay. So today we are talking about yoga, not to be confused with yogurt or Yoda, (laughs) but that activity in which you practice the individual positions of the Kama Sutra, but with a group of strangers, sometimes in a room that maybe feels like it's just inside the crater of a volcano. Hopefully that's not too soon for Hawaii. I actually really dig yoga. Um, I used to practice yoga quite a bit. And so I'm really excited to kind of dig into this. You know, what's funny is that I started yoga because I was not super flexible and I ended up actually dislocating my elite and my kneecap doing yoga. So, um, you know, it's been a fun journey on this path to elasticity. <laughs> okay, got it. I like elasticity as the goal yeah. on this. I've done yoga a number of times, and I've done the hot yoga as well. And what I do like about it is I like feeling like when you actually do it consistently, feeling like you get stronger and being able to stretch more. I like the sort of calm atmosphere that is usually part of yoga. And I guess the the sort of meditative-like situation I find myself in when I'm doing yoga. I will say what I've always disliked is I've never had an instructor that I felt was very helpful. They'd always say things like straighten out your back more or like do this a little bit differently. And I'm like, it'd be helpful if you would just say exactly what I need to do before I try it and then exactly how to fix it when I'm doing it wrong. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know what like I feel like my back is as straight as it could possibly be. How could it be any different than how it currently is, you know? Yeah. And so having more explicit feedback. Yeah, that's actually something I've I've learned is like as you kind of like start pushing into move like into positions and stuff, like you start kind of becoming more aware of different things, but it takes time to get there instead of being like having an instructor that's like, this is what this should feel like. So, yeah, but yeah, I mean, I think the idea of yoga is this pretty vast, broad thing. Right. And I think maybe a lot of times people just think it's this one thing where it's like standing in a room in yoga pants and doing stretches and in all this like warrior one, warrior two, but it's actually pretty in depth. So in this episode, we already answered the question of do we yoga, but we are going to look at the history of yoga, why we do yoga and its impact on our mental health or well-being and even some physiology related things as well. Why we yoga. All right, let's talk about the history of this, shall we? Yeah, let's do it. So we, in our research, thanks to Alan as well, who did the notes for this episode, it was really hard to pin down exactly where the origins of yoga came from. There's a ton of inconsistencies of the oral and written accounts from history. But what we kind of estimate or researchers estimate is that its origins for yoga are anywhere between five and 10,000 years ago. So it's older than the earth, depending on the circles that you talk to. (laughs) I did not see that one coming. <laughs> I should I should have. I should have. So yeah, yeah, you're right. The first mention of yoga that we could find comes from about 5,000 years ago in northern India, and this is was found in texts about rituals used by the Brahmins, which were Vedic priests in India, and it contained a lot of variability in practice and procedure until what you might call the classical period, where yoga practices became a lot more ritualized and systematic with a goal to quote unquote cleanse the body and mind and to break the knots that bind us to our physical existence end quote so you see quite a bit of sort of mystical tradition wrapped up in this 
as we kind of go through too, you'll see that that is still kind of a, a common thread among many of the practices in the different types. But uh, yoga entered the West or the USA in the mid 20th century in Hollywood, shockingly, right? So no surprise there. And has since evolved and spread rapidly around the Western hemisphere with many variations and individuals becoming instructors and continuing to modify and expand the practices. So you can go and look at, there are a ton of books, there's a ton of texts, there's a ton of perspectives on this. It's really interesting to keep, kind of see how deep and how vast this practice has become. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Psychology Today talks about yoga as being formally considered an exclusively holistic therapy for issues of mental health, but recently a number of research projects and endeavors have sought to justify this practice using a more scientific approach, which is certainly something that we tend to appreciate. Yeah. And, you know, just because something maybe in its like inception wasn't effective doesn't mean that it couldn't be effective in some other context or perspective somewhere else. So like basically what they're saying is recent scientific experiments have suggested improvements related to anger, anxiety, sleep, PTSD and mood disorders or mood challenges. So you'll see that there is some kind of maybe not a direct impact, but it seems that there is some kind of effect on those different things. And I definitely saw a little bit of research to suggest that there was some benefits for even overall health, as well as things like pain and pain management, too. Yeah. Now, this needs continued empirical support, but the seeds are there. You know, the foundations are, are available. And anytime we can look to alternative options before we turn to things that are more invasive, which might include things like surgery or pharmaceuticals, it could be helpful to consider approaches that might be... I guess, just a less invasive strategy to mitigate those, as long as it's not something that's dangerous and, and dire and needs immediate attention. Right. Absolutely. So I think it's worth kind of digging into the what of yoga, like what are the different types? Because one thing that I've noticed, and, and as somebody who has practiced it a little bit, is that there are so many varied types and variations of yoga. I am a little bit upset with Alan, though, our researcher, because he did not include DDP yoga in this. If you're not familiar with DDP yoga, that's Diamond Dallas Page, the former wrestler, the WCW champion, has his own yoga instruction <laughs> that has helped many wrestlers get back on their feet and go back into wrestling, like Jake the Snake Roberts. So, you know, shame on you, Alan, for missing that one. <laughs> and our resident expert in all things wrestling, <laughs> Dr. Shannon, here to help fill in the gaps. Yeah, here I am. I mean, it's it's a very it's a very niche market, but DDP yoga is is, is should be included on this list. All right, I'm gonna just list the types of yoga, and then we'll go through each one with just a little bit more detail. I'm not gonna dig into super deep, but just to hopefully help everyone remember what they are. So we have vinyasa, mm -hmm. hatha. Ooh, I don't know if I can pronounce this one. Probably Evengar. Iyengar? Iyengar. Yeah, that sounds good. Kundalini, Ashtanga, Bikram, Yin Yoga, Restorative, Prenatal, Anusara, and Jivamukti. Yeah, so we probably butchered <laughs> those, but we'll do our best, and so we apologize. And if you are a yoga instructor, please write in and or call us and yeah, yeah, let us, us. Let us know how to say these things correctly, because I prefer to be as correct as possible. Right, so let's go ahead and start with Vinyasa. Vinyasa translates to, quote, to place in a special way from Sanskrit. This is more of an athletic style, and you'll see this pretty, I feel like this is pretty common when you kind of see like different yoga tropes and different practices. This is a pretty common style. Now, other types that fall under vinyasa would be ashtanga, power yoga, or prana. You might see those different terms. And the movements under vinyasa are coordinated with breathing and the flow from one position to an, another. And you'll actually hear teachers and instructors talk about this. They'll talk about yoga flows and different flows they create and different flows they might incorporate in their teachings. And a flow is just a bit, essentially a different sequence, depending on the teacher, how they create the flow and for different purposes. Now, those purposes will be tied to chakras or they'll be tied to different, you know, cleansings and stuff like that. But different flows have different positions. and Vinyasa focuses primarily on how one flows into each position. Perfect. And then there's the Hatha yoga, again, Sanskrit, and this is all the physical postures of yoga. And this is most popular in predominantly in Western culture. And this one's probably best for beginners or people who move at a slower pace. And this is just a sort of classic approach to breathing and exercise. So probably one of the lower impact, easier to do forms of yoga. Right. And so then you've got Ivangar, Iyengar which is founded by BKS Ivangar. Uh, I can't, I'm so sorry that we're butchering that, but with this particular practice, it focuses on alignment and precise movements all while controlling breathing. So you'll kind of see a theme here where there's positioning, 
there's flows between positions and there's breathing exercises within that. And a lot of times those breathing exercises will talk about controlling your diaphragm. They'll talk about breathing as you flow into a position, things like that. And what you'll see in this particular type of practice is that the poses are held a lot longer. Um, so you might get into a position and stay in that position for a lengthier period of time compared to maybe vinyasa or hatha. And this is really good for folks with injuries or maybe need to work slowly. As somebody who has significant injuries, like a back injury and a knee injury, this would probably be really good for me to help kind of work on those joints and work on those areas that are pretty painful for me. This is also probably one of those where you can learn just how long a, a second can really feel mm -hmm. when you're sort of holding a position for a long time. You're like, God, it feels like it's been five minutes. Oh, it's been three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> right. And really force that time to feel like it stretches on forever. Just for those who want to help, it looks like the spelling here is I-Y-E-N-G-A-R, that word we're struggling with to pronounce. So, <laughs> all right. The next one we have on here is the, the Kundalini, and this combines physical and spiritual practice. So the idea here is to release energy in your body said to be trapped in the lower spine and targets, quote, the core and breathing with fast moving, invigorating postures and breath exercises, end quote. So this one's going to be a lot more intense involves some of the more mystical sort of practices and ritualistic practices like chanting and mantra and specific meditations. And then you've also got the Ashtanga, which is more advanced. And this requires you to be a little bit more familiar with some of the positioning and some of the breathing techniques, because this is not for beginners. This is really physically demanding and specifically the sequence of postures or the different variations of the postures. You'll find that they tend to be more advanced. They tend to require a little bit more flexibility, a little bit more core strength, a little bit more practice in these. You're not going to have as much of the direct instruction from the instructor compared to what you'll see in some of the other ones that we've mentioned. And as a reminder, this is one that falls under the category of vinyasa. Yes. The next one on here that a lot of people have probably heard of, which is called Bikram yoga, named after Bikram Chowdhury, also known as hot yoga. And note for those listeners who are interested, there is a lesson on separating the art from the artist from this person or the yoga from the yogi in the eponymous 2019 Netflix documentary about Bikram to learn more about the style and the strange guy who is behind behind it. So <laughs> for those of you who are unfamiliar, this is practiced. This is done in a room with the temperature raised really high, often to about 105 degrees Fahrenheit and humidity. So they have humidifiers pumping it up to about 40% humidity. So it's like a Florida winter. <laughs> I was going to say, this is not, I was like, this is just doing yoga anywhere in Florida. Exactly. You, you just go outside in Florida and you're, you're roasting at 105 with 40% humidity. So particularly if you're down in like Miami, that's a low humidity day. Most of the time it's 90. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's why I said oh, winter in Florida. <laughs> right. Yeah. If you want to do Ashtanga Bikram yoga, then come to Florida, then you could do 105 degrees, 90% humidity. This is super advanced stuff. Not for the, the faint of heart, that one. <laughs> nope. So anyway, the sequence in Bikram, there's 26 basic postures, each performed twice. And most of these focused again, sort of on that alignment aspect. Following that, you've got yin yoga, which is slow paced. You have a lot of seated postures and these are held for long periods of time. So this is really great for beginners. And the postures are actually held for 45 seconds to two minutes, which going back to Abraham's comment before, you learn very quickly how long a second is when you are in these positions, especially if you're not somebody who is used to staying still. I learned this kind of as I was going through my yoga practices that I was like, oh, I tend to move at a very fast pace and slowing down is torturous for me. So to be able to like sit in a position for 30 seconds is really difficult. Now, what's really cool, the kind of the idea or the thought behind this type of yoga, this yin yoga is that the focus allows you to kind of let gravity work its magic and do its work. So when you get in a certain position, it lets your body kind of you know, fall in line with how gravity is going to pull you towards the earth. So if you're in a certain stretch, gravity is going to help you stretch further simply by hanging or by leaning forward or leaning in certain positions. This one, I think, sounds most like what I would be interested in and in spending my time doing probably because I'm, you know, lazy. <laughs> Not that this is for lazy people. I, yeah, I just it sounds so it sounds really nice. Yeah, just it just. Yeah, I'm a beginner, <laughs> essentially. So. Not an expert here. <laughs> yeah, just let me just let gravity help me touch my toes. There you go. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> Another one that we have on this list is restorative yoga. This is the focus on relaxing after a stressful day. 
the idea is to sort of help you cleanse your mind or clear your mind, just sort of, I guess, get probably a little more present and aware. Uh, this has fewer postures and is modified specifically for relaxation and often uses props to help relax more deeply. So pillows and blankets and that sort of thing. I, ch- I changed my mind. Restorative is where I want to be at. I just want to do corpse pose forever. <laughs> exactly right. It's just you laying down. It's great. Savasana. Super good at that. It's, I'm so good at that one. I'm good at baby, a baby pose too, which is like just laying like just curled up on my knees speaking of baby pose (laughs) speaking of baby poses we've got the prenatal yoga or as abraham likes to call it in vitro yoga this includes pelvic floor work breathing and bonding with the baby and this uses props but more about stability than flexibility because i could never imagine being like nine months pregnant and imagining how that would throw off my own balance i can never imagine being nine months pregnant (laughs) Right. I could, yeah, I could never either. <laughs> Full stop. But what's cool about this one is that you get this fetus that's good practicing all these stretchy moves and is like holding all these poses and, and all that. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. It's baby yoga. Yeah. <laughs> all joking there. Then we have the Anusara yoga, and this is the sort of modern, more modern version of the Hatha yoga that I mentioned earlier, again, focused on that alignment And this one has an emphasis on sort of a a mind-body-heart connection, probably languaging that way, sort of saying, like, you're connecting your mind to your heart, and now your heart to your body. I don't know. I'm guessing that that's what they're they're sort of going for there. And the emphasis here is on uh, a heart opening, so trying to open your heart. Not open heart surgery, or probably literally opening your heart, but metaphorically opening your heart. Yeah, and then you've got uh, Jiva Mukti, which is similar to Vinyasa, and it's infused with Hindu spirituality. So you'll see an emphasis on connecting to the earth as a living being, kind of that oneness feeling, and it's correlated with vegetarianism among other amongst those who practice. So here's one thing I want to say about all of these is that you have probably, if you've ever done yoga, have probably heard languaging from all of these kind of embedded or rolled up into those, into like maybe a specific practice. Like I can say that I've done Bikram yoga and heard terms like opening your heart. I've heard terms like let gravity do the work and let it kind of like, I've heard all of these things. You've heard the terms flows. You've heard all of that stuff. And so you'll see kind of depending on the instructor or maybe the practice that you connect with, you're not going to solely practice a single type you're probably going to see some kind of like melting pot or mixture of these different types within modern day yoga practices i'd like to start a why we do what we do yoga and it's going to include couch pose (laughs) and (laughs) coffee pose yeah i like movie pose where i put my feet up on the couch yeah yeah that's the way to do it yeah i like reading pose where it's like just basically corpse pose with a book exactly exactly right see i think we've got something here we've got something special that's it yeah we need to we need to copyright this now all right well it's on record so can't you can't take it we've unofficially copyrighted it in this episode unofficial copyright that's it that's it it's it's time stamped all right let's talk about some benefits of doing yoga and obviously there are quite a few things that are touted but like some of the actual benefits that are described are a positive impact on stamina physical strength balance and of course because there is so much stretching there is often a benefit of just overall flexibility anecdotally i can attest to that i was never in my life able to touch my toes and then when i started doing yoga i could actually touch my toes in a stretch without bending my knees so i saw like an actual evidence of that also there are reports of reduced stress levels improved emotional stability increased sense of well-being and anecdotally again i would say that i was definitely more calm when i was doing yoga more often sure and i think so there's anecdotes and then there's sort of the scientific angle of sort of what's the proof and you know, is there any evidence or empirical data to back this up? And most of the studies that we found that Alan described as well involve self-reporting, but there are there is the potential here for good single subject design experiments that use these sort of interventions and to look at tangible outcomes. Things I mean, flexibility is something you can tangibly measure. You can measure the distance from your fingers to your toes. You can measure how long someone can hold a pose until they become, you know, exhausted or uncomfortable or you know not to say that those are necessarily the best metrics but those are things that are tangible that we can look at and get real hard numbers on now that being said the social validity of the positive self-report is not necessarily something to shirk at either if people are experiencing or reporting that they're experiencing relief of these symptoms like feeling stressed or even pain if people feel like they're reporting that they generally have a better sense of well-being like that's not 
that's not nothing even if it's not necessarily something we can specifically quantify someone's experience of well-being is is important just as well as the tangible i guess measurable outcomes of well-being although that being said we do want to be careful that the report is not something that's just like i want to make the researcher feel i want to tell them what they want to hear sort of thing so so just have to be careful there but you know it's it's worth considering that the social validity aspect of this is still useful. Now, when it comes to research examples, studies have looked into the management of cognitive impairments from cancer, schizophrenia, sleep disorders, and depression through the lens of kind of using yoga as a tool. So an example of this would be two 90-minute yoga classes per week led to significant improvements in concentration and memory. Now, they, they found this in a study But the study itself was two months of regular Hatha yoga classes demonstrated those improvements in working memory and mental flexibility for those participants with an average age of 60. So uh, what's interesting about that is you saw these improvements, but it's one of those things where I always ask the question of, and this is kind of the skeptic in me going, well, was it the yoga? Was there something else? Were there maybe physical changes as a result of maybe physical exercise that maybe helped improve these? Was it the activity? There's so many other questions that I have around that, that it's hard to say that to me, it's solely yoga. And I would probably make the argument that maybe the researchers didn't make that same argument that it was solely yoga that did this. They also found improvements in executive function in cognitive reaction times too. So there are these studies that kind of show that there is like, like Abraham mentioned before, the seeds of this working without having that hard evidence of it working every single time. And we'll dig in a little bit more on sort of the skeptical angle toward the end of this as well. But that's exactly, you exactly highlighted what that position is, is looking at, you know, what's the relevant features that's having an impact because the actual impact itself is fairly clear. We do see a lot of actual tangible benefits here. It's just understanding how much of that is due to the yoga itself. Right. And we'll get more into that as well. So, all right, let's talk about how and why does this work if it if it does in fact work. Well, it's the heart, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on, dummy. Just kidding. I mean, it sounds a bit too bleak to simply say because I feel better afterwards or at least not very scientifically grounded. When you're trying to examine the processes that contribute to the effects of yoga. So, of course, we just need to dive a little bit deeper and look at the specific physical characteristics of this. Right. And so when you get into the idea of physiology and kind of the impact of yoga, the one thing it does is it increases heart rate variability or HRV, which you'll hear us kind of reference later. And it calms down the autonomic nervous system. Now, if you don't remember what the ANS does, the ANS regulates body functions such as the heart rate, digestion, respiratory rate, pupillary responses, urination, sexual arousal, all of those things are regulated by the ANS. So you might want to check in on it every so often. (laughs) Basically, what we're saying is take care of your body, folks. Right. Real quick. I just got a picture of Alan calling his ANS and be like, hey, buddy, you all right? Yeah. (laughs) How's your pupillary response, your urination, all your sexual arousal going okay? (laughs) It's all good. Okay, good. I'll check in. I'll check in another year. Yeah. You know, just just make sure that (laughs) ANS is doing what it needs to do. So (laughs) that's great. (laughs) So anyway, the heart rate variability, this is, quote, the distance between one heartbeat to the next. The goal is to try and have increased HRV because it has been shown to calm your autonomic nervous system and regulate your emotions. When you're feeling relaxed, there is more space between each heartbeat and your HRV is increased, end quote. So that's sort of the, the main goal here in talking about the physiological outcomes of doing yoga. Right. And so when you have somebody who has decreased HRV, those are, you know, those are typically related to negative affective states. What you'll find is that when somebody has like a higher heart rate or something along those lines, they might have more difficulty regulating your their emotions. So think about like when you're upset or you're angry or you're having these moments where you're kind of feeling pretty emotional, your heart rate is probably a little bit higher than it normally would be. And those folks that have a really high heart rate might be more likely triggered by events and they might be thrown off course. And what they find is that yoga can actually help increase that space between those heartbeats and lead to better resilience in the presence of those triggering events of those moments that throw people off. People tend to be calmer because their heart rate is not as intense. I think certain political figures are functioning as trigger events right now for a lot of people. (laughs) Right. And if I did more yoga, I think I'd probably be more calm when I saw Mitch McConnell's stupid face. (laughs) I wasn't going to throw anyone specifically under the bus, but so that's fine. <laughs> this is you specifically. I think any you know anybody hears 
Donald Trump or Joe Biden or Mike Pence or Kamala Harris. And, and depending on where you fall in the political spectrum, you might immediately have a, a visceral response. So do a little yoga instead. <laughs> but I think for the most part, like I, the reason I picked Mitch McConnell is I think everybody is in line with disliking this guy right now. I mean, maybe you might be right. Most people. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you, but, uh, but yeah, maybe <laughs> so for our fans. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, let's get into the types and poses of yoga that are best to really get those benefits you're looking for, calm the nerves, decrease the trigger for Mitch McConnell, all that sort of thing. <laughs> there are multiple components to this, and the contributing factors are the postures, breathing exercise, and the meditation components. So those are sort of the, the main elements here of, that are going to contribute to getting those, those best outcomes. And typically what you'll find for a maximal benefit is going to be some kind of balance of all three. Now that's going to depend on the person and kind of what they subscribe to as well. You know, for physiological responses and postures and breathing exercises are going to be super helpful for like mental or psychological well-being. The meditation might be a component that's helpful. I personally find meditation really distracting. Shockingly, I, I have a hard time kind of like sitting down and focusing. So for me, I don't find as much benefit as when I'm able to kind of like think about things while I'm in a flow. But that's, I think, a perfect opportunity or a perfect kind of exercise in looking at like how individualized yoga instruction or individualized yoga practices are beneficial for different people. Like, ah, all these thoughts. Ah, ah, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like these thoughts. So. I don't like, I don't like not thinking. Um, so that's, that's really my struggle is I just, I can't stop. I can't turn that off. I'm always thinking about something. So and it's aversive for me to just stop. That's okay. I think that's actually part of it. And, uh, and cause I've also found that for myself, it's hard. I, but, but I don't think the goal is actually to stop. I think it's just to recognize that it's happening because so much of the time we're just sort of on autopilot Yeah, and let those things kind of run. So anyway, off track. Let's talk about how yoga might be used for individuals with neurological and developmental disabilities, such as individuals with an autism diagnosis. I mean, you and I have spent a lot of our career working with individuals in this population. And so this actually, a lot of what we're going to talk about here comes from Chicago ABA Therapies website. Yeah. So given our understanding of heart rate vari uh, variability or HRV, we might be able to utilize yoga to work on goals commonly found in ABA therapy with individuals with autism or related disorders. So one of those things being self-regulation, because you'll find that some folks in general, not just folks with autism or that are neurodiverse, but some folks have a hard time regulating emotions, regulating their physiology, regulating kind of like any of those things. And if you find somebody kind of is impacted by yoga, then this emotional self-regulation might be helpful. If we find somebody who has improved emotional regulation that can be achieved by breathing exercises, it may actually improve responding to aversive stimuli or different situations. So they may be able to tolerate more challenging situations if they're able to kind of manage their emotions or manage their responses a little bit better. Yeah. And specifically, this is the whole sort of fight or flight thing that most people have heard of at this point in their lives, which is that in these certain situations, are you going to try and punch your way out or are you going to try and run or the other one that often is talked about now is are you just going to sort of freeze up and clam up and there might be a better response than all three of those things and sort of how you regulate yourself and so yeah. all of these things can be sort of improved if you have better self-regulation that might be facilitated by practicing yoga yeah. Another one that's, I think, related to this is this idea of working on these specific motor skills. A very common, I mean, pretty much anybody that listens to this, and I know a lot of our listeners are practitioners or work in some capacity with individuals who fall into this category. They might be physical therapists or occupational therapists or behavior analysts, or maybe not, but a lot of the work that we do focuses on work with motor skills. This mm -hmm. is fine motor skills such as dexterity with your hands and fingers and gross motor skills such as basic ambulation and being able to make large coordinated gestures. And when we observe many deficits in motor planning for individuals that fall into this category, yoga may help improve some of their sort of spatial awareness and overall motor coordination. And that makes sense just from a fitness standpoint, right? Like just from general activity and fitness motor skills are, they tend to be improved just from practice and exposure. So absolutely. And the next part here, I think is going to appeal to our occupational therapist base. 
Yeah, so there may be some sensory benefits related to yoga as well. So individuals who tend to be sensitive to overstimulation with light sounds, they might find some solace in the minimalist setup of yoga routines. They're not walking into a gym where there's there's weights clanking or there's machines humming and all that. Usually, typically, if you've ever taken a yoga class, the lights are pretty low. The instructors tend to be they speak in very low tones, very calming tones. They tend to be not a whole lot of inner physical interactions, if any at all. I can think of maybe two yoga classes that I took that maybe the instructor actually would like give you physical feedback, but for the most part, you're not touching anybody. There's enough space between people and it's really great. It's not a sensory overload compared to some other like gym or workout or like even sports types of fitness programs. And I think that's probably beneficial for folks that really struggle with that or where sensory input is really delicate. It's a really delicate topic. And then another benefit here is just the overall structure of yoga. As we had mentioned in describing the different types, there's often a sort of routine and repetitive, I guess, sort of uh, approach to this and that the, the yoga routines that are very structured, familiar, based on repetition, these rigid routines might be really accessible for those who tend to thrive with relatively rigid schedules, who are used to routines and regularity and repetition and could potentially be a platform for even allowing the opportunity to introduce a little bit of novelty and variability by making small tweaks to the routine that they are used to, but in a way that's it's not challenging and it's not drastic in any way. It's you know subtle and easy to follow. Yeah, absolutely. So when you kind of think of yoga as an activity is a really great opportunity to be able to work with folks, to be able to get them engaged in an individualized activity, something that doesn't have any sort of like specific benchmark or like a specific goal. Like the, whenever you kind of talk to anybody about yoga, it's, it's about practice and continuation and seeing about pushing a little bit further and kind of working on that. So, you know, because of its variety, because of its individualism, because of the way that you can kind of like cater it to everybody's needs, it can be really beneficial for just anybody who is looking for something with that kind of flexibility. This is all so inspirational. Now, I really want people to do more research on this so we can actually see, you know, a lot of this is sort of hypothetical saying that like this probably could work and certain, certainly some practitioners have used this and found benefit from it. And I think some really systematic and rigorous study would be helpful to justify including this in practice. If there's benefit, I think that there probably would be, but we just need the data to really confirm that and and good scientific rigor to suggest this is useful because if it is, then this can be covered in treatment plans, be recommended and included as part of a therapeutic sort of approach and package. I think one thing I would say about this is it's promising. Yes, that's a that's a much better way of describing it. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, <laughs> that's how I would sum it up if I could. So now, you know, like Abraham had mentioned, we have worked in a space where we've worked with neurodivergent folks. We have worked with autistic folks and individuals with disabilities. And we primarily spend a lot of our time working in a behavior analytic space. Now, there are folks that do combine applied behavior analysis or ABA and yoga. And it's I think it's worth mentioning in this in this discussion. So combined is yogaba. <laughs> oh man. I hope I hope that these folks use that. Um, if not, <laughs> they do they can now. Yogaba Gaba. There you go. So yoga with giant fuzzy costumes. It's the next step. <laughs> and also a member of the Aquabats. So <laughs> yes, Aquabats. Dude, deep cut reference. I love that. <laughs> That's it. DJ Lance was in the Aquabats. That's great. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So there's a website slash company, an organization of some kind called precisionchi.com. And this was founded by a behavior analyst named Janet Vasquez. Vasquez. Sorry if I'm butchering that also. And she experienced yoga to be a positive intervention to cope with stressors related to a demanding professional life. So this is more on the sort of for the the implementers, the, the frontline staff, if you will. Yeah. And so again, that website you can find is precisionchi.com. There'll be a link to that in the show notes as well. Now in the about me section of her website, she outlines how breathing exercises came to replace the sort of less appropriate and unproductive responses to stressful situations of work and helped foster instead alternative behaviors that were more successful in addressing those situations. Basically what's coming out of this is that we could consider this a replacement skill, right? Like a, an appropriate replacement for some problematic behaviors. Now, if breathing exercises learned from yoga come to act as like a self-management strategy or a self-regulation type of strategy to deescalate a situation so that you don't 
explode or blow up on somebody, then that's not a bad thing. We might be moving to better problem solving behaviors if we're able to kind of interrupt that response and get to a space where we can actually regulate our emotions. There is a great argument to be made there. Yeah. And I mean, she notes that she began observing a, a generalized effect of this when she began using the breathing methods from yoga in novel situations that were similar to the stressful situations that she was experiencing. These effects led her to report that performance in in leadership improving, performance in management improving, other business-related behavior. Now, as the caveat, we'll say that this is anecdotal reporting, right? This is going back to self-report, positive self-report and all that. So take it with a grain of salt, but this is something that you will see kind of consistently across people who do practice yoga is that there is consistent anecdotal reports of it having some kind of beneficial impact. Okay, so let's talk more about, again, just getting into the sort of perspective, theoretically, conceptually, scientifically, of what's going on with yoga. So there are certain goals of yoga that I think have are, are worth considering, which is, for example, accepting of oneself, this idea of sort of inner peace, that sort of thing. And these are really operationally difficult to define in some way. And they present a challenge when looking to really evaluate the benefits of yoga in a really scientifically grounded way. Or to be able to program yoga to create specific strategies and structures to produce those kind of outcomes. It's so nebulous, you just can't, it's really difficult to systematize. It's sort of like talking about consciousness, where it's like nobody has a definition and they just all agree that it exists without being able to agree on what it is. Very much like the, the concept of a deity of some kind. And so on the other side of that coin, though, you've got physical forms, you've got poses, you've got stretches, you've got physical well-being. There's benefits to that that they've actually kind of seen and demonstrated. So you've got this really interesting space where you've got mysticism and science that are kind of joining into the same space. And people who are researching that kind of having to parse that out and the behavioral perspective tends to lean heavier on that scientific objective measurable those types of data that are a little bit more beneficial for the researchers or the practitioners. And of course, yoga might be sort of an avenue that serves as a form of leisure or as sort of an escape from the demands of and, and rigor of sort of daily life and work. And so this may also have value on top of its health benefits for just sort of mental well-being, if you will. So there, there might be some legitimacy to that, just as any form of taking time for yourself and relaxation might have a similar benefit. And then as one becomes more fluent in the movements or joins a yoga studio or a community or becomes a member or a trainer, starts presenting more opportunities for social engagement, for social benefits, kind of like CrossFit, like or other gym cultures, like you kind of find your crew, you find the people that you want to spend time with that have a shared interest. And that lends itself to a lot of really great pro-social opportunities. It's hard to argue against that when there are so many, uh, so many great benefits of having pro-social situations or pro-social opportunities with folks. You know, the first rule of CrossFit is you always talk about CrossFit. <laughs> yes. It's, uh, the CrossFit and vegans, that's what they have in common. <laughs> CrossFit vegans. Love it. All right. <laughs> Yoga culture um, also embodies generally a sort of default to no judgment. They tend to emphasize being welcoming, creating a friendly environment, and having that be from the outset that there is this this welcoming, inviting place. So there's certainly an appeal to a low barrier of entry, if you will. Yeah. I mean, one thing I will say is like every, anytime I've practiced or been in a class, the instructors kind of give the, the caveat that like, if this pose is too difficult or you start tiring out, go ahead and revert the child pose and rest at any time during it. So the, and then get back into the flow once you can. So there is like a, a really great, op especially the, the better instructors will give you that caveat. Now, Perhaps a talented or well-versed yoga instructor could tailor a routine and sequence for individuals' needs and goals, kind of like we do with ABA interventions or, or different practices that you might see in, in therapy. And actually, that's really cool. It makes yoga extremely accessible for folks who are actively seeking this type of engagement. So like Abraham just said, there's a low barrier of entry. There's no elitism, it doesn't feel like, for the most part, when you enter some of these classes. I'm sure there are some out there, like there's always an exception to the rule, but you can kind of jump in and, and be okay with that crowd for a little bit. Now, as far as why we do yoga, and um, we've sort of been alluding to that the whole time, there, there are various reasons, health benefits, that sort of thing. There's sort of general categories of why people might, might do this. So one might be to try and just get away from things that are unpleasant. You're trying to get away from pain, trying to get away from stress, that sort of thing. 
But for some people, it actually might be more about trying to achieve things like comfort and social interaction and flexibility. Like there might be some some beneficial outcomes. And of course, there might be a mixture of those two things together. And that might be it. So anyway, all of these are genuinely acceptable. They're totally legitimate reasons why someone might do this. But it's important to note that for everybody who does it, they're going to be unique. It's going to be their own circumstances, their own motivations for doing so. And there are clear reasons, but those are some sort of easy to identify reasons that one might do this. And I do think that there is, there's another reason people might do this. That's not just getting away or achieving something that's fairly direct, but also achieving something that's fairly indirect, which was when people go into the space, bringing with them a sort of mystical mindset, they might feel like there is a correspondence between what they expect to achieve in their mystical value and what they get out of yoga. And so they achieve something that's not necessarily directly measurable in any way, but it's a feeling of connection to the value that they have of sort of the, the spiritualness, if you will. Is it Pat Fryman talks about metaphysical sources of reinforcement? And that's like one of the things he talks about is this idea that there is like this feeling of like accomplishment or this feeling of good. It's like it is a, sor a sort of feeling that you get that you can't really explain with the, the general types of reinforcement that we typically observe. I don't know the exact citation for that, but that does sound familiar to me. It sounds very Pat Fryman-y too. <laughs> it does. It does. Yes. Yeah. So one thing to consider too, when you kind of look at all this, there are a variety of leisure activities. We've talked about this. I mean, Abraham and I talk about this all the time when we give our recommendations, watching movies and reading books and do all the kinds of, all the things that we like to do. Playing games. Playing games. All those things, right? There's, there's a variety. Anything from exercise to recreational drugs, but a night of wild partying may be enjoyable for that moment, but does not produce the same type of lasting effects that you're going to see from yoga as far as physiological benefits, right? Maybe there's some social implications to go with a bad night of partying and all that, but the physiological benefits of yoga tend to be a little bit different than a single night of having a few too many drinks. <laughs> now, like we discussed before with breathing exercises or stretches, it can help relieve back pain and it can help with sleeping. There is a learned behavior in yoga that can carry over beyond that one hour class. And I think that the BCBA Velasquez talked about that from Precision Chi and how those generalize into different spaces. Conversely, looking at that type of effect that carries over, when we talk about drug and alcohol effects that carry over, not as pleasurable, not as exciting actually not as comfortable either, right? They're probably pretty painful or, or really you struggle with them. So there tends to be more, I guess, positive or more desirable effects that come out of yoga compared to other types of activities. Just subtle difference. Yeah, subtle <laughs> difference. Quite different. <laughs> now, I think, you know, we've been fairly, I think, positive about yoga and it's warranted. I, I do believe that there's a lot of benefit here. And I think as far as really looking at the research, and a skeptical view of this is always warranted. We always want to bring a sort of level of skepticism here. And just at the outset, acknowledging that yoga is an effective, low-impact exercise that has benefits for cardiovascular health and that sort of thing. Right. It's also been, as you mentioned, been so entangled with this mysticism and this woo and a lot of sort of low-quality studies or studies that are just hard to make a lot of, of, of really good quality judgments from the data that were derived in those studies. So, for example... There was this 2011 study that found that participants reported reduced lower back pain when they engaged in yoga compared to just sort of standard treatment for their back pain. Although there were very few quality studies that actually compared yoga to other forms of exercise with respect to that pain. So it's possible it was just exercise itself that was sufficient to do this. And there's nothing really special about the movements or the routine or anything in yoga. It's hard to say because that wasn't directly compared. But there is also this, ca this caveat here that. If yoga were to function for people to have a sort of fun and engaging strategy for maintaining their exercise regime, which it does for many people, then that is a tangible benefit that we could still acknowledge, even if it was that like other exercise would have a similar benefit, but yoga tends to be one that maybe people stick to a little bit better. And that would be something legitimate that again, it just wasn't, it wasn't captured in that study and it really has been captured to the best of my knowledge yet. You think of other low impact activities like swimming or bike riding, any of those things could have a similar effect and we just don't know, right? 
So also too, the meditative aspect of yoga has been shown to lower blood pressure, but this hasn't actually been compared to other relaxation techniques. So we don't have any sort of kind of gauge or litmus test to compare to for things that we know are effective. Like we can see that it maybe has an impact, but we don't know if it's the meditation technique or it's something involved in the meditation technique. We haven't been able to parse that out. So maybe it's just a relaxation component. Maybe it's taking the time to stop and think versus like actually doing the activities within that type of practice. And there are also all these claims that many yoga instructors and, and yogis and stuff have made that are so bogus that if they were true, then they would actually be dangerous, not beneficial. So, for instance, some yoga instructors claimed that a certain pose would build up blood pressure to the point that when that was released, it would wash away arterial plaque. And this, first of all, isn't how blood pressure works. And even if that were the case, then it would more likely cause a brain hemorrhage or a stroke. So hopefully the instructor is just lying about that even being possible because this wouldn't work. And if it did, it would probably, it would be potentially very dangerous. Right. Still other instructors have claimed things like that. They can have these poses to stretch the optic nerve, which if that were the case could result in blindness or brain damage. So don't want to nerves don't like to be stretched. That's not something we want to do. Right. They claimed that their positions would squeeze the liver. This could result in internal bleeding and prove fatal. They claim to be able to squeeze the pancreas, which could also cause internal bleeding and possibly lead to permanent damage in your pancreas, Right. which is really critical for producing insulin and like keeping us alive. So we don't want to squeeze our organs. What we want to do is essentially stretch and flex and use our muscles and probably get a low impact amount of exercise with our joints such that we can benefit from exercise that isn't a lot of our joints hitting each other really hard or being forced in un uncomfortable movements and that sort of thing. So just... It just doesn't make a lot of sense to make claims that would like, if they were true, then like people would be dying left and right. And like going to a yoga class would be like a, a high risk activity. And I feel like this is kind of the case with literally every field that there's somebody out there that makes these outrageous claims. Like I met a functional chiropractic chiropractor and he told me that he could cure autism with chiropractic. So, oh, you know, everybody's got their thing. Uh, I guess the main takeaway here is don't squeeze your organs and don't stretch your nerves. Like the first thing I thought of is like stretching your nerves would be like trying to stretch out power lines. Like <laughs> yeah. they're not designed to do that. They're designed to, like at a certain point they break. They're not elastic. Yeah. Be like, take your, your phone charger and just pull on as hard as you can. See if that improves its charging. Yeah. Don't do that. That's just, it's just ah, common sense. It's not a flower that grows in everybody's garden. So now like other forms of exercise, there is risk of injury. I mentioned that I actually subluxated my kneecap doing a, a specific pose and it wasn't even a high impact pose. Like I actually had to go to physical therapy for a month for my knee because I did mess it up doing a specific pose because I stretched too far. And it wasn't because of the pose. It wasn't because of yoga. It was because I pushed it a little bit too far. So you need to be careful not to push too hard when practicing yoga. You have to kind of Pay attention to how your body feels when you get into certain positions and know that if it's uncomfortable or painful, that it's probably you're probably going a little bit too far and to kind of ease up a little bit. Yeah. So this is not a, an activity that is without danger. And another thing here is that there's a few of these yoga practices that have a really hardcore gimmick to them. And one of them is, as we mentioned, the hot yoga, where you have the, the temperature up to Florida. <laughs> we'll just call that Florida. Yeah, we just call them sun huggers here. There you go. The the problem with this is that they make all these claims about benefits, but there's there's not really actually any evidence for the benefits of practicing it in hot yoga. And in fact, that exact environment is an environment that can lead to dehydration and overheating because you're sweating so much that you're actually losing fluids and you're in such a, a warm environment where you're heating yourself up through exercise that you can you can cook your internal organs and your brain and stuff. So wanted to be careful about this that yeah it's not necessarily like seriously dangerous but the benefits are really not they've never been empirically demonstrated so want to be careful not to tout something where there's there's just no evidence for it to be true yeah so i think with that being said i mean i don't know there's much more we could say except to kind of wrap it up yeah yeah i mean i think that we've talked about we've talked about the history and sort of the why and the the potential impact of this so yeah, I think that we've we've covered our bases here on yoga. So take on point here. When you walk away from this episode, I think what's useful to remember is that yoga has the potential to be beneficial and highly personalized. And I think this lends itself well to a, a specific 
if you really do a good analysis and appeal to its effects, given that for some it could be maintained, sort of what's your motivation here? Is this for social variables? Is it a way to relax and try and get away from things like pain or stress, that sort of thing? You know, know what, what you're in it for, and that can help guide sort of the approach that you take to it. And additionally, I think that there are enough variations in the types of yoga that you can pick one that's most closely aligned with the goals that you have for yourself. So again, like you might choose a specific type if you're trying to relieve pain versus you're trying to just achieve a social environment, that sort of thing. Or maybe you're trying to improve heart performance. Like those are all going to have an impact on these. And so the why that you have is important. It's going to be unique to you and you can use that to guide decisions you make about what way you practice yoga and when you practice yoga and with who you practice yoga. As far as take home points go too, practicing yoga might help reduce the likelihood of other debilitating health conditions like cardiac issues or back pain or headaches. And that can actually make the level of aversion to common stressors. Like we can actually exacerbate those aversions. We can actually help with that maybe. So if you hate your job and your back hurts all day at the same time, it may be harder to be resilient and figure out a plan of action. But for those who maybe practice and kind of relieve those symptoms, you know, it, it might be easier to tolerate those things that are more problematic. But for those who suffer from actual chronic illnesses or previous injuries, yoga might actually help reduce the negative impact of those symptoms that they have on daily life to a degree, right? There's also the caveat that like, if you have a chronic illness, you should probably also get it medically treated on some level, especially if it's life-threatening or, or severely debilitating. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that uh, it's worth reminding of the the point that we made in here about the self-management benefits and both, I think, for people who are sort of on the practitioner side or people who are on the consumer side, those who are individuals with, as you said, neuro neurodiverse sort of population. And so this provides an opportunity for a coping strategy in discussions of like treatments, also as the practitioners provides an opportunity for more adaptive behaviors in those situations, both where you can take things learned from yoga and apply them to new situations in, that might arise in the future, as well as just the overall benefit that can come with things like breathing exercises and learning relaxation techniques and looking for a way to deal with sort of daily stress in a way that's more sort of proactive and productive than some of the other escapes that we might have. Having alternatives to these other damaging activities is is just so necessary. Like looking at things like drugs and alcohol, like while there might be some moments or like things might feel good in that moment, or you might kind of create a social circle around those things, they kind of get you away from work. They don't have these long lasting effects. They don't really do anything to get you to engage in a more appropriate or socially acceptable or even a healthier type of behavior. So Yoga can actually provide that without destroying your body, right? It can provide that without developing an addiction. It can, it can provide that and also create a social circle that's a little bit more constructive or proactive in helping your health benefits. It's hard to say to what degree that has an effect or to what degree it can compete with something like addiction, but it's definitely a better alternative. If you, if you had to choose between like cocaine and yoga, please take yoga. <laughs> It takes my pain away. <laughs> oh, man. A Jimmy Eat World reference, too? I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I was hoping you get that one. I figured you would, but... All right, cool. Anything else on yoga? No, I think that's it. I think that covers it. And I'm excited to hear kind of like our yoga, like our yogi listeners and hearing what they think about it, too. Oh, I do want to actually end on one more take on point, which is just, again, reminding of the skeptical angle that right now we don't have a clear distinction between the benefits of yoga and other forms of exercise and relaxation. So it's possible it's just... Another way of getting at the benefits of exercise and relaxation, which is to say the benefits of exercise and relaxation are relatively well known and yoga might be a way of getting at them. It's just something that needs to be more closely evaluated with high quality studies to look at that. And then some of the woo, some of the claims that are made in yoga are completely bogus. So just reminding you that like when they claim that it's pinching and squeezing your nerves and stretching your nerves and squeezing your organs and all that sort of thing, it's not and we don't want it to because it's not a good thing. But it might be stretching your muscles and, and working your heart and all those are good things. So yeah, we don't need to fluff it off. Honestly, I think if we could add another type of yoga to the list and that was science-based yoga or just science yoga, I think that would be perfect because then we could really capture the the benefits and, and we won't have to fluff it up with anything that's unnecessary to the point of being wrong. Right. We could shake out the rigmarole. Okay, cool. Now I'm ready to move on to some recommendations. All right, let's do it. Recommendations. Recommendations. 
All right, I'm going to recommend a movie that is kind of old, but I just saw recently, and this is called The Host, and there are like 11 movies called The Host, but this is the one by Bong Joon-ho, the director. It came out in 2006. It is a monster movie, basically, sort of a horror monster movie. And even though the CG is a little dated, they actually did a pretty good job with it, and where they relied on practical effects instead really worked. I just I thought it was a really good movie, really well-told story. There's something about the director who's just, he's so able to capture real humanity, but in a way that's also kind of a caricature. I don't know how to explain it exactly, but I just, I love, I love the way he shoots his movies and I thought that the directing was fantastic. I, I really enjoyed it. So I'm recommending The Host by Bong Joon-ho, the director in the year 2006 is when it came out. All right. I'm adding that to my list. So my recommendation this week is a book by Stephen King called The Outsider. I am admittedly not done with it. I'm about 100 pages in, which is, I don't know, like 10% of any Stephen King book. We know that. (laughs) The reason I added it is because I am so sucked into this book. Just the way that it kicks off just starts with, it just, it pulls you right in and gets you believing this one side of the story. And then, and Stephen King is just so effective in getting you to like get wrapped up in this one conclusion for the for the kind of this horrific crime that's happened in this town and then once you're dug in and once you're like yeah it's this guy he starts unraveling everything and making he makes you feel crazy when you read it like you're like yeah this guy did this thing there's evidence there's eyewitnesses there's this 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 and they're like but is there and you're like ah king like you do that kind of every single time. So it is my first foray outside of The Dark Tower by Stephen King. So I've never read It or Pet Cemetery or all his classics. I haven't read those. So this is kind of my first taste of his writing devices outside of that. And I'm just like totally sucked in. I want to read literally every one of his books now. If this is the same story I'm thinking of, then this was turned into uh, like a TV series, maybe a miniseries. Right? Yes. I loved it. I thought it was really good. I also think that the book is probably worth a read just from the TV series being so good. And man, we, yeah. we were talking about this before we recorded, but when you get a good director and like writing team to adapt a Stephen King novel, it works so well. And so it's, it's such a bummer that like so often many of his properties have just been not treated very well that the movies have either been forgotten or are even held as like a, this is, total garbage you know type yeah of status but when it's done well it's done really well well i think there was even one movie i forget what it was but stephen king went to court and had his name taken off the movie even though it was an adaptation of his because it was so bad I'm trying to guess what it was thinner maybe uh, yeah it, it could have been it might have been thinner I, I don't think it was the mist but like you know stand by me Great. Green Mile, Great. Shawshank Redemption, my favorite all ever. King movies, all fantastic stories. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Great, great, great stories. Great movies done really well. But then you have Maximum Overdrive, which is exactly is a crazy or a crazy movie or Dreamcatchers, which is was not like received well. It's like, like, I mean, he's got like, I mean, you don't even realize how much Stephen King is in our like daily lives. There's one I think called Desperation, if yes. I'm remembering correctly. And the movie was among the worst I've ever seen of <laughs> all movies, yeah. if I remember. So again, just really terribly done in my opinion. Maybe some people like it. So not, not to, not to criticize something that other people like, but I, I did not like it at all. But the, you know, the thing is, is like, that's what's so great about him is like, you can actually just grab so much of the media from him. Cause he writes like four books a year. So <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Very prolific writer. So yeah. Okay. Let's do a quick donor party teaser. If you have been following along with us, this is our second one of these. We're leading up to a special episode on this. There's going to correlate with around the time that it took place. So Donner Party teaser, the year is 1847, the month, January. It has been a full nine months since the Donner Party left Springfield, Illinois, almost convincing a notable rising political figure to join them. It has been a weeks of constant snowfall and food supplies are depleted. Now, the human body can go without food between one and three months, and I've heard reports of people going even longer. However, in this particular case, members had been on limited food supply already for weeks and exhausted themselves trying to outrun the snowstorms in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Due to the U.S. Marines winning the Battle of Las Mesas, part of the Mexican-American War, the first relief party would soon be on their way. But would it be enough? And what is the cost of survival? 
So find out the answers to these questions and more at the full release of the episode coming in April. I love <laughs> how Selena wrote this. So special thanks to Selena on writing our Donner Party teaser. She's the primary writer behind the episode. Special thanks to Alan Kinsella for his wonderful notes on this episode with respect to yoga. So thanks to you for recording with me today, Shane. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Got anything else to uh, before we wrap this up? Nope, I think that covers it. Perfect. All right. If you'd like to tell us about your yoga, then please do so. If you'd like to talk to us about Stephen King movies or Bong Joon-ho movies, we're certainly happy to hear about those. Reach out to us. If you are a member of the Donner Party or, or you wish that you were, feel free to let us know. We'll share your story on here, you weirdo. <laughs> If you like this podcast, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen to this podcast. Remember to subscribe so that you always get our newest episodes, which come out every week on Wednesday. And then, yeah, I think just contact us. We would like to hear from people. And uh, I think that's all I've got. So this is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. For those of you who are listening right now, I've lost Abraham. He's gone. It's quiet. He's frozen. His eyes are closed in the still frame that I have here. And he may be able to hear me, kind of like if he were in a coma, but uh, he can't respond. So I can't even ask him to blink if he understands because his screen is frozen. So it's a little bit concerning. And he's gone. So now I am by myself in this Zoom meeting. <laughs>